our series on the family. We're calling it I Can Relate. And this weekend it's Mother's Day. So I'm going to be talking to moms specifically about the role that you play in our lives, more specifically about the contributions you make in the life of your children. Now next weekend, I'm going to speak to the dads, and I'm going to talk about the contribution you make in the life of your children. And I know what some of you are thinking, why are you talking to the moms on Mother's Day? Why not talk to us on Father's Day? Well, honestly, after 36 years of ministry, I have figured you guys out. See, moms love to come to church on Mother's Day. In fact, I ran into one of my friends. I said, I thought you'd be at the beach today. And his wife spoke up. She said, nope, I wanted to be in church on Mother's Day. That's how moms roll, right? You want to be here? You want to be here with your kids, your grandkids? It's part of experiencing Mother's Day. Father's not on your life. They want to golf, go fishing, go to the Waffle House, anything, uh, clean the pool. doesn't matter. Cut the grass. Just don't make me go to church on Father's Day, right? So I'm going to get you next week. And that way you can do whatever you want to do on Father's Day. But this weekend... Uh, we are going to talk about moms next week's day. By the way, let me just say this. It's probably going to take a generation or two to see what the actual impact uh, same-sex marriages and same-sex parenting is going to have on our culture. I mean, I can tell you now, it's going to have an impact one way or the other. And it's going to take a while for us to see what it is. But this is, this is what I've learned all these years of being a follower of Jesus Christ. You may want to write this down because it's the most profound thing I'm going to say this weekend. Maybe you've never heard this before, but God is really, really smart. Have you guys figured that God is really, really smart? And there's a reason that when God began the family in Genesis chapter 1, we talked about that the first week of the series, God created them both male and female. And you're going to see over the next two weeks, we, they play specific roles when it comes to the life of a family. And if we don't recognize that, we can just say the family as God designed it and created it to be is facing extinction. So it's just something we have to become to terms with. I am going to be talking to moms this week. And let me just say, I think it used to be uh, much simpler to be a woman. You know, I mean, when I was growing up, uh, if you were a girl, a little girl, you wore lace and played with dolls. And eventually you fell in love and got married and you had some children and you made your husband happy for the rest of your life. See, that was the good old days, right? And if you're of my generation, we even grew up with TV shows like, you know, Leave it to Beaver and Father Knows Best that just kind of reinforced that stereotype. But I think it's safe to say that the world we live in is not like that anymore. And I think it's actually much, much easier to be a guy. I mean, guys, you know, we basically grow up until we reach middle school. And then we totally stall out emotionally. It's like we're stunted. We never, ever grow emotionally again. It's like we are frozen in time. We continue to grow uh, physically, but we just stuck right there at middle school. All of us guys at heart, my wife tells me this all the time, you act like a middle schooler, which I say, thank you. Thank you very, very much. We just are kind of stuck there, right? And eventually we get a job and we buy a car and we pretty much wing it for the rest of our lives. It's not that way with girls. It's very, very complicated, very complex to be a woman in today's culture. But if being a woman is complex, I'm telling you, it's only intensified when a woman becomes a mother. A few years ago, Irma Bombeck wrote an incredible piece. Uh, I've hung on to it for years. It's entitled, When God Created Mothers. And I just want to show you how complex you are. She writes, when the, God, when the good Lord was creating mothers... He was into his sixth day of overtime when the angel appeared and said, you're doing a lot of fiddling around with this one. And God said, have you read the specs on this order? She has to be completely washable, but not plastic. Have 180 movable parts, all replaceable. Run on black coffee and leftovers. Have a lap that disappears when she stands up. A kiss that can cure anything from a broken leg to a broken heart and six pairs of hands. The angel shook her head slowly and said, six pairs of hands, no way. It's not the hands that are causing me problems, God said. It's, it's the three pair of eyes that every mom has to have. 
That's on the standard model, asked the angel. God nodded. One pair that sees through closed doors when she asks, what are you kids doing in there, when she already knows. Another here in the back of the head that sees what she shouldn't see, but what she has to know. And, of course, the ones here in front that can look at a child when he goofs up and say, I understand and I love you without so much as uttering a word. God, said the angel, touching his sleeve gently, you got to get some rest tomorrow. I can't, said God. I'm so close to creating something so close to myself. Already I have one who heals herself when she is sick, can feed a family of six on one pound of hamburger, and can get a nine-year-old to stand under a shower. The angel circled the model of the mother very softly. It's too soft, he sighed. But tough, God said excitedly. You cannot imagine what this mother can do or endure. Can it think, asked the angel. Not only can it think, it can reason and compromise, said the creator. Finally, the angel bent over, ran her finger across the cheek. There's a leak, she pronounced. I told you you were trying to put too much into this model. It's not a leak, said the Lord. It's a tear. Huh. What's that for, asked the angel. Well, it's for joy and sadness, disappointment and pain, loneliness and pride. You are a genius, said the angel. Somberly, the Lord replied. I didn't put the tear there. So. Very, very complicated. And we're so honored that you are here with us this weekend. If you're a mom, would you just stand? Just stand up. Just stand up. Just, 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 just let them know. All right, stay right there. Stay right there. Stay right there. If you had a mom, stand up. That's everybody, okay? Everybody stand up. Find a mom and give her a hug. Say, I don't even know who you are, but happy Mother's Day. All righty, sit down. That's enough. That's enough of that stuff. And on a week like this, uh, man, I naturally think of my own mom. Uh, uh, my mom and dad together represent 175 years of life, okay? And uh, we grew up very, very poor, traveled very, very little. They've been to a few places around the world. Uh, in fact, they've never left the United States, and most of the time have not left the state of North Carolina. They had never been to Charleston. And they said, we'd love to go to Charleston. So uh, Laura and I and my sister and, and her husband, we decided to take them to Charleston for a couple of days this week. And uh, so we, we, we learned a lot. Uh, we, we learned a lot about my mom. And what I learned is she'd be the first one to tell you she is not a perfect woman. She'd be the first one to admit she is very, very human. In fact, we were talking, and she said, you know, when I was a little girl, I was standing out in front of the house. I was on my roller skates, on the sidewalk, out in front of my house. Now, you get this. I grew up on Austin Avenue in Durham, okay? Not the swanky part of Austin Avenue, the rough streets of Austin Avenue. My grandmother lived right across the street. So my mom grew up in the house across the street from the house I grew up in. Across the street, on the sidewalk, she says, I was just hanging out on my roller skates, and a little girl from across the tracks came over and called me a mean name and smacked me right upside the face. I said, you're just standing there and she smacked you right upside the face? Yep, she called me a mean name and she smacked me right upside the face. I said, you weren't doing anything? She said, nope, wasn't doing a thing. She just called me a mean name, smacked me right upside the face. I said, did you call her anything? She said, I could have called her something. I could have called her something. But that's my mom. She's being very, very honest, right? But terribly devoted to her family. And see, when Mother's Day rolls around, we just have memories like that that we can't silence. And some of you, some of you have moms that live on. Some of you have moms that have passed on. But my goal this weekend is simply to help us understand the contribution that moms, God created moms to make in our lives. If you have your Bible, 
2 Timothy is going to be our guide. You can turn there, maybe find it on your phone or whatever you brought this weekend. 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy, just so you know, is a very, very personal letter. It just absolutely drips with nostalgia. Because Paul is writing this letter to a young man named Timothy. He's known Timothy for about 15 years. And understand, this letter that we're going to look at for the next few minutes, it's just as personal as any letter you would write to a really, really close friend. Or any letter that you would write maybe to your child or a child would write to their parent. And I'm confident that Paul and Timothy never dreamed, when Paul wrote this, I'm confident they never dreamed that it would find its way into the Bible. Paul simply wrote a letter, just like we write letters. He wrote a note. But you know what happened? It found its way across the Adriatic and Aegean seas. It found its way to the city of Ephesus. It made its way into the home of a young man named Timothy who was a young pastor in a church. And then over time, it made its way into the canon of Scripture. In other words, it became, this personal ladder became one of the 66 books that make up the Bible. And just so you know, to add to the nostalgia of it, it's the last letter that Paul would ever write. Because as Paul writes this letter, he's chained in a Roman dungeon. He's waiting to be executed. In fact, did you know you can go to Rome today, visit the catacombs, and you can see where there are actual paintings and drawings of the Apostle Paul that date back to the first century. Paul in chains in prison. And by this point in his life, he's lonely. He's pretty much been forgotten. And then when you get to 2 Timothy chapter 2, he picks up a stylus and he writes to Timothy, my dear, my dear son. Now we know that Timothy wasn't actually the blood son, even relative of Paul. And we know that because of something you can read in Acts chapter 16. It says in verse 1, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra. This is his second of his third missionary journeys. Where a disciple named Timothy lived, now notice this, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was Greek. And that little contrastive term there, but whose father was a Greek, it suggests that not only was Timothy's dad ethnically different from his mom, and we know that's true, she was Jewish, he was Greek, it also suggests that he was different spiritually. I mean, I think it's safe to say that Timothy's dad was an unbelieving Greek. I think Paul would have honestly said his mom who was a believer, his dad who was a believer also, he doesn't say that, and that doesn't mean that there's anything necessarily wrong with Timothy's dad. But it would mean that there's probably no spiritual input from his life into the life of Timothy. In other words, if there's going to be any spiritual input into Timothy's life from either one of his parents, it's going to be from his mom. I'll say something about that later. But you'll also notice in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, that Timothy was a disciple. It says, Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. And there's a lot of debate. Is this someone that maybe Paul led to Christ on his first missionary journey? Or, or is this just someone who was already a, a believer? But it says in verse 2, the believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. In other words, they held Timothy in high regards. And as a result, Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. And he takes him on this missionary journey. And Timothy and Paul, they become very, very close associates. Although Timothy is about 30 years younger than Paul. And over this time of traveling together, they grew in their relationship. They developed a father-son relationship. In fact, he mentored Timothy. He invested in him. We say he discipled him. He prepared him for the ministry. And that gives you just a little bit of background, a little bit of insight into Paul and Timothy's relationship. But now as he's writing this, it's 15 years later after he met him. Paul is chained in a dungeon. He's facing death. Timothy is at the zenith of his career. Paul is at the end of his career. In fact, he's going to be beheaded in just a few days. Paul knows that. So he's got some things on his mind. And so in this cold, damp dungeon in Rome, he decides to write this letter 
to Timothy. So I want us to look at it, and in these verses, I think you're going to see some unique contributions that you moms make in the lives of your children. You're going to certainly see it in the life of Timothy. Let me just give you the first one that you make, and then we'll unpack it. The first one is tenderness. Tenderness. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Now look what he says. Recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And that sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like Paul is saying, I long to see you because when I think about how you used to cry, boy, it makes me happy, right? It makes no sense whatsoever. But I take it to mean that there was something very, very special, very, very unique about this tender side of Timothy, Timothy's life. Now, having said that, let me just say this. We live in a day where tenderness is considered a feminine trait. I mean, if there's a guy that gets emotional or he's sensitive, what do we say? Well, he's in touch with his feminine side. And I even joke around about, you know, if, you, if you're a man, you cry, you're just a sissy. But even I know that's unfair. I mean, think about this. When women are hurting, they're sad, they can just cry. And all their friends will come up to them and say, honey, you just let it go. We understand. Just let it out. You know, you get, ladies get together and celebrate that. But, but when a man is struggling with heartache or sadness or disappointment, he pretty much has to grunt, shrug, run, hide. I mean, come on, guys. How many times have we been at a movie and we've done this? Or you're at home, man, I got to go to bed, honey, oh, my eyes are getting all watery, I'm so tired, right? I mean, as deep as we get is, you good? Yep, you good? Yep. See, that's about as deep as men get. But this is what I want the moms to hear this weekend. One of the greatest contributions you make is helping your children, especially your sons, cultivate this trait of tenderness. I have this book, old book I've had in my library, gosh, I guess as long as I've been a pastor. It's by a woman named Joyce Landorf. It, it's entitled Tough and Tender, What Every Woman Wants in a Man. And uh, you can't borrow it because I'll never get it back. And I don't even know if they make it anymore. But let me read a little something she writes about this tenderness trait. She writes, listed below are 11 words which have to do with being a wise gentleman. I love that. As you read them, try to remember incidences or conversations when you apply these words to your family and marriage. Mentally score yourself as to when these words became actions with your wife or children. It will be a great way to evaluate your tenderness. We're going to put the words up. First, consideration. Sympathy. Helpfulness. Tact. Courtesy. Compassion. Unselfishness. Politeness. Understanding. Thoughtfulness. Social manners. And then she writes this, how did you rate? How did you guys rate? And you could remember a recent time when you became each of these words in your daily life to your family. You are definitely unreal. Actually, you are a saint, and you'd best get back to heaven where you belong. <laughs> However, if you scored about six or seven, I would say that you have a special relationship going with your family at home. So guys, just think about that. How are you doing in the area of tenderness? I know it's considered manly in our culture to be tough and coarse and strong and macho. When, in fact, I'll be honest with you, one of the most attractive qualities that mark us as Christian men is, etern is, this, is this tenderness that often, more often than not, we learn from our moms. I was telling my mom the last couple of days when I was with her, I said, Mom, I don't know why, but one of my most vivid memories there were a few days when I was either coming up the back steps from playing outside or maybe going out the back door to go down the steps. And my mom, for reasons I didn't know, she would be sitting there and she would be crying. 
I didn't know why she was crying. I just assumed she didn't know what to do with me, so she just sat there and cried, right? <laughs> and I'm going to be honest with you. I will never forget that. It got to me, and my point is, moms, you can't stop doing that. We don't need a bunch of tough, calloused women. We need moms. I'm telling you, the hard plastic varnish world we live in desperately needs to be softened by tender hearts. Your children will fill it from you, but not only that, they'll learn it from you. So Paul is writing this letter, and he says, listen, Timothy, as I think about you and I remember the things that characterized your life, I remember that you were a tender, sensitive individual. I remember your tears. There's a second contribution. It's authenticity. Look at verse 5. He says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. The Greek word for sincere is anhupakritas. We transliterate it. We get our word unhypocritical. So Paul says this. When I think back over the 15 years we traveled together, when I think back over the 15 years of our relationship, I remember how authentic your faith was. And you know what? He says it was unhypocritical. Now, where, where did Timothy get that kind of faith? Well, look at verse 5. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. So he says, I'm reminded of it, Timothy, but I think what he's saying here is, Timothy, it didn't originate in you. Meaning what? Meaning that, that being authentic Christian is not an inherited trait. Being an authentic Christian is a learned trait. In other words, it, it, we're not authentic Christians because our parents were authentic Christians or our grandparents were authentic Christians. We pick it up, we learn it somewhere, and Paul suggests here that Timothy picked it up by observing his mom and his grandmother living it out on a daily basis. And that makes sense when you think about it. I mean, when you think about your mom's faith, pretty simple. Not a lot of words. I think of my mom, not super flashy. My mom never walked around in a t-shirt saying, I am an authentic Christian mom. You know, she just kind of did her thing, lived that kind of life, rock solid. I mean, just dependable. You could always count on it. In fact, let me show you something else that's interesting in, in 2 Timothy. If you turn over a couple of pages to chapter 3, it says this in verse 12 as Paul is writing to Timothy. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, again, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. Verse 15. And how from, look at that word, infancy. From infancy, you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He said, man, it started when you were just a child. Where did it happen? Where did he learn it? He learned it from his mom. Remember what I said? His dad wasn't a believer. By the way, let me just say, isn't that the way it is in, in most of our homes? And I'll, I'll say more about this next week when I talk to the dads because it's really not the mom's job to do this all by herself. But it is the way it is in most of our homes. If we're honest, in most of our homes, it's our moms who took the spiritual lead. Right? I mean, some of you guys, if you were honest, you're at church on the weekend because your wife says, we are going to go to church, aren't we? So you're thinking, if I don't bring it up, she'll forget we have church on the weekend and I don't have to go, right? See, it's kind of moms that take the lead, right? It's the moms, when the child is hurting or going through, more often than not, I'm just being honest with you, who take the time to pray with the child. We'll take the time to make sure they understand a, a spiritual, biblical principle that, that pertains to something that they're going through. Just walk out to any of our campuses, our five campuses. You know what you'll find? 75% of the people who serve at Hope Community Church are women. Many of them 
or moms because they already understand the point of serving. I cannot tell you how many times I've had moms, wives come up to me and say, we would love to be engaged financially with what's going on at Hope Community Church. But my husband, right? They seem to take the spiritual lead. So Paul credits Timothy's mom. But also notice that, that he, he refers to Grandma Lois. And that may be encouraging to some of us who are grandparents. Because maybe you sit here and you listen to this message. And maybe as a mom, you, you, you blew it with your children. Maybe you weren't a Christian. Maybe you didn't have that moral foundation. And, and maybe you look back and think, man, I wish I would have been that kind of mom. Well, let me just tell you, God in his great grace has a way of refreshing our lives by giving us grandchildren. And saying, fresh start, clean slate, do over. I love the bumper sticker. If I had known how great grandkids were, I would have skipped my children. See, that's true. You just go great to the grandkids, right? They just absolutely worship and adore you. And I got to tell you, and I'm not exaggerating when I say that my grandma Lizzie, who was my mom's mom, she had as much impact on my life as my parents did. My grandfather died my junior year of high school, November my junior year of high school. And uh, from that day on, I was the oldest grandson. Maybe that's why. But I just determined there's no way my grandmother should be living in that house by herself. So starting that night, all the way till I finally went off to college, about a year and a half later, I spent every night in my grandmother's house. I'd go to work. I'd do my after-school activities, sports, whatever. But when it was time to go to bed, I was at my grandmother's house. And she lived in this old wooden framed house on Driver Avenue in Durham. And, and it was old school. It had, a, it had one heater down in the living room. So if you slept upstairs at grandma's house, you'd better bring your footy pajamas because it was that one heater. And over time, she had actually made, which was the living room, she had made that room her bedroom. She had moved her bed in there. Well, guess when, when a grandson comes to sleep at grandma's house, there's no way she's going to let him sleep in the cold room. So she made me use her bed in that room. And that was okay because she said, I get up early. But here's the thing. She, for years, worked at Burlington Industries in Burlington, which means she had to get up very, very early to go work in the mill there. And... Uh, because of that, she, even when she retired, she'd get up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, which is probably where I got it, I guess. But I would often look, and there was this little blue flame that would come off of the, off this little stove when it was working. And more often than not, I would see her praying, or many times she would have her Bible tilted toward that flame, and she would be reading the Bible. See, I think Timothy had that kind of memory. Somehow, in the childhood days of Timothy's life, the, the, Timothy, there was a mark, there was a brand left on his life, and it was authentic Faith. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here. Moms, more often than not, we get that from you. You see, dads, we, dads set the pace. Dads talk a good fight. But I'm telling you, the implementation of that talk takes place through your hands and through your heart. So there's tenderness, there's authenticity. Here's the third contribution, confidence. What it says, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. And that word doesn't mean shyness. It means fearful, inferior, or intimidated. In other words, God is saying, I didn't create you to live a life of intimidation and inferiority and fear. In other words, if you struggle with those feelings, understand, you didn't get those things from God. You inherited those things from the world system. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. The word in the Greek means inherent strength or might. I think we would call it inner confidence. And this little phrase in verse 6, for this reason, leaks this trait of inner confidence to the context of Timothy's mother and his grandmother referred to 
back in chapter 5. In fact, from here on out, it kind of builds on that. And so not only does God give us power, Paul is saying God gives us power through our roots. In other words, he gives confidence in our lives through the lives of our parents. you got to understand, parents, one of the primary goals in the daily grind of life is the building of that inner absolute sense of self-worth in the life of your child. And, and James Dobson, in a book that he wrote a long time ago, this is a book I studied in college, in child psychology, uh, called Hide or Seek. I think he's done about as good a job as anybody has ever done in my lifetime on the subject of self-worth. And in the first few chapters, you should get the book, it's still in print, he talks about the cults in our culture of beauty and intelligence. And he basically says this, if you're fortunate enough to be born, have a child that's attractive and beautiful, or maybe you have a child that's intelligent, in the world system we live in, they're going to say that that child is worthy. They're going to say that that child has value. But if you happen to have a child that's not all that attractive and maybe not all that smart, culture says good luck. But this is where parents can play a huge role. In chapter 4, he talks about self-esteem. He says this, it is high time that we declare all-out war on the destructive value system which reserves self-worth and dignity for a select minority. I reject the notion that inferiority and inadequacies are inevitable that the present epidemic of self-doubt is unavoidable. Although our task is more difficult for some children than for others, there are ways to teach a child of his genuine significance regardless of the shape of his nose or the size of his ears or the efficiency of his mind. Every child is entitled to hold up his head, not in haughtiness and pride, but in confidence and security. And Paul says, you know, Timothy, as I think back over your life, I remember that that inner confidence. And Timothy, I know that it was a product, a direct result of your relationship with your mom and your grandmother. How cool is that? There's a fourth one. Doesn't surprise us. Love. Love. Verse 7, for the Spirit of God, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power. Love. Now, when you think of love, don't think of some, you know, hidden, warm, fuzzy, mushy thing that comes out on rainy days, you know. It's not something that's motivated by candlelight or, or, or soft jazz. That's not the kind of love I'm talking about. The Greek word that Paul uses for love is a love that's demonstrative. It's a love that's reaching out and doing what's good, doing what is best for the other person. In fact, one of the best ways to describe this kind of love is unselfishness. And let's be honest, when it comes to unselfishness, this is just one of the things we naturally learn from our mom. She is our first model of unselfishness. She is our first example of unconditional love. I'll give you an example. You remember crying out in the middle of the night when you had a bad dream when you were a kid? Who came running? Dad, not on your life. Dad ain't getting up with an earthquake, right? Nothing's going to get Dad up. Mom, but she is right there. And see, this is why it's so important. Kids remember that unconditional love when they're running from God. Now, let me, let you, let me break your young parents' hearts a little bit. That little perfect child you got is going to turn into a halion. At one time, a little demon. I'm just telling you right now, you're going to think of a demon possessed. Because I don't care how strict, how the home you bring them up in, you can bring them to church every, at some time, they're going to test the boundaries of their Christian walk. And sometimes they go prodigal. Sometimes the journey's a little bit longer than you thought it was going to be before they realize that God is real in their life. Gary Vett, who is my right-hand guy on staff, he's the most godly guy I have ever met in my life. He's my encourager. He's my confidant. He's the one who corrects me if he thinks I'm out of line. He, is the the he has got a doctorate in theology. So when I have a question about something, I go talk to him. Often I will sit down with him during the week and say, this is my message this weekend. What do you think? 
That's the guy. I love him to death. He is one of the godliest men I've ever met, but when he was younger, he was a thug. He was just a thug. He lived, he lived in the mean streets of Chicago. And as we were talking about this message and the roles that moms play in our life, he said, I'll never forget the day my dad sat me down and looked me in my eyes. And he said, you are breaking your mom's heart. He said, it tore me up. It was one of the things that brought me back into a relationship with God. Why is that? Well, it's because we remember the demonstrative, unconditional love that you showed us. How it kept coming back, kept coming back, kept coming back. It had staying power. Kids know it. They can feel it. They sense it. They hear it in a thousand different ways. And I got to tell you, moms, it rings in our ears even when you're not around. That unconditional love. So there's tenderness, authenticity, confidence, love. Fifth, self-control. Look what it says in verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and self-discipline. And of all five, this may be the most rare one, the rarest of all. Self-control or self-discipline is the ability to say, no, I am not going to do that when everybody else is saying yes. It's the ability when we go off to college to discern the right thing to do when everybody else around us is doing the wrong thing. It's helping me understand me well enough to control me. And again, the goal here is trying to help your child understand himself or herself. It's those reproof that begin as simple in the early days of life. No, 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 no. No, no, don't touch. No, 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 no. Don't go into the street. And it goes right on up to the time that we become young men and women. And we sit down and we tell you what we're thinking about and decisions that we're getting ready to make. And after listening patiently, you say, you know what? I don't think that's wise. I don't think that's wise. And you don't bend in your stance. You don't compromise. A few weeks ago, my, it was my dad's birthday. And we, were, we were together as a family. And, and my we had ordered our food, and we were just sitting there. And, my, you know, my parents are getting to the later stages of life, and you can see it almost every time you see them. My dad just said, hey, listen, I want to apologize to you guys that we didn't have a lot of money to do any fun things when you guys were growing up. And I'm like, we didn't know any difference. We lived in our massive 900-square-foot house with six of us, one bathroom. But you know what? Every kid on my lit street lived in the same pretty much 900-square-foot house, right? In our minds, we lived a Norman Rockwell existence. Played outside till it got dark, had the time of our lives, right? But my dad said, yeah, but we, didn't, we never went on a vacation. We didn't, we didn't do any of those things. We didn't really care. But then my mom spoke up, and she said, now I grew up, you guys know how strict I grew up. She said, and I often feel guilty that we raised you guys so strict. And I said, Really? And I said, so you're saying if you had it to do all over again, you'd have raised us differently? You'd have given us a little bit more freedom? She said, I think so. I said, you mean you would have let us go to movies? See, I never went to a movie until I got married. My parents wouldn't let us go to movies. I said, you'd let us go to movies? And she said, no. I said, so you mean when I was in the second grade and, and we were square dancing in PE and you wrote me that note that I couldn't square dance because we weren't allowed to dance? So that's Baptist. We don't believe in premarital sex because it might lead to dancing. See, that's how serious we are about dancing, right? I said, so you're telling me when I was in the second grade and I was embarrassed because I had to go sit on the bench on the side of the gym while all my friends were, and I know dosey doing can be sexy. I know it can be tempting. But are you telling me if, if we had to do all over again, you would have let me square dance? No. 
Oh, you mean you would have let me play sports on Sunday? See, we had to just sit around and kind of be quiet on Sunday. It was the Lord's Day. So you couldn't go out to your friends and play flag football or, or basketball. So you don't let me play sports on Sunday. No. I said, so mom, what would you have changed? Nothing. <laughs> no. See what I'm saying? Uncompromising. That's what we need from you. See, we need to know that there are those boundaries. Dr. Stanley Coppersmith was an associate professor of psychology at Cal Berkeley, and uh, he studied 1,700 middle-class boys and their families, following them from a pre-adolescent period in their life to early manhood. And after going through this study, he identified the boys with the highest self-esteem, the most self-control, and he compared those to the homes of the boys who had the lowest self-esteem and the lowest self-control. And he found these characteristics that distinguish them. Parents, you should listen to this, okay? First of all, this doesn't surprise us. The highly esteemed children were clearly more loved and appreciated at home than were the low esteemed group. That makes sense. Second, the high esteemed group came from homes where parents had been significantly more strict in their approach to discipline. You know, I told my mom and dad, I said, I'm the kind of kid that if I'd have had the freedom, there's no telling where I would have wound up. And I read that and I thought, wow. By contrast, the parents of the low esteem group had created insecurity and dependence by their permissiveness. Their children were more likely to feel that the rules were not enforced because no one really cared enough to get involved. By the way, do you know what that means, parents? God did not create you to be your kid's friend. He cre created you to be an authority figure in their life. And if you're trying to be their friend, they are laughing all the way to school behind your back. I can just tell you that. They're going to work you inside and out, okay? And then third, the homes of the high esteem group were characterized by democracy and openness. Once the boundaries for behavior were established, there was freedom for individual personalities to grow and develop, and the boys could express themselves without fear or ridicule. And the overall atmosphere was marked by acceptance and emotional safety. And I think you can see that in the life of a young man like Timothy. What he's basically saying is this. Your kids need boundaries. Strict boundaries. Boundaries you don't compromise on. And when they cross the line, there's a price to pay. I think that was in Timothy's life. And as a result, he was a young man that exhibited self-control. How about that? Tenderness, authenticity, confidence, love, and self-control. Now here's the thing. Moms. You're the key. You're the key. Dad, five different things for you. Moms, you're the key. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. <laughs> it would have been great if I'd have been that kind of mom. Well, don't forget, one thing that you have is your authenticity, you know. And you know what? Acknowledging that you don't have it all together actually helps us get it together ourselves. And let me tell you one other thing. Moms, we give you a lot more rope than we do dad. Because you're mom. And we are aware of that unconditional love. And I'll just say this. If you didn't do it with your children, you still have your grandchildren. As we love to say around here, it's never, ever too late to start doing what's right. And even if you're a mom and you say, man, I haven't done a very good job of contributing those things into the life of my kid. Again, it's never too late to start doing what's right. Let's pray together. I'm, I realize on a day like today when we talk about these kinds of things, it stirs up a lot of emotions. Because for some of you, you're sitting here and you're aching inside because this is what you're thinking. Wow, I wish I would have had that kind of mom. 
Maybe that doesn't describe your mom. What describes your mom is unfaithful, disappointing, no follow-through, inconsistent. But let me tell you something. One of the big ten in Exodus chapter 10 or 21 says this, honor your mother and your father. You've got to figure out what that looks like in your life. But she's still your mom. And maybe, maybe that you, you've kind of estranged yourself from your mom because maybe she wasn't a great mom. Maybe she didn't have a great role model herself. Maybe she wasn't a believer. But maybe your response to this message is taking a step back into that relationship. A phone call, an email, a text. I'm not saying that everything can ever be what it should have been. But I'm telling you, when it comes to relationships, the goal of God is always restoration. Restoration. Moving some barriers. You may have to leave some boundaries in place. But restoration. For some of you, if you weren't this kind of mom, maybe you didn't become a Christian until later in life. The best thing you can say to your children is, man, I'm sorry. But from here on out, I'm doing everything I can possibly be to be the, God, to be the mom that God designed me to be. You will be absolutely amazed at how much slack your kids will give you if you just simply admit, you know what? I didn't handle a lot of things right. But I'm going to do better. I'm telling you, it's amazing what that conversation can do. Father, we thank you on days like today and next week as we talk about fathers who in some ways the bar is actually higher because studies have shown for years and years and years that we draw our conclusion about what you're like from our heavenly father, from our earthly fathers. That's a high bar. But we're talking about mothers this week. And Father, nothing stirs up emotions and nostalgia like this topic. And you're moving in our hearts in so many ways. And I can't sit here and apply every situation, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would go to work in our hearts and minds and tell us what the next step is. None of us have perfect moms, but they were designed by you. And Father, I pray that we'll give them some slack and we'll reach back into their lives if we've cut ourselves off. I thank you for those who have been in the trenches and some of these moms listening They've done it for a while all by themselves. And Father, I just lift them up to you, and I pray that you would give them a special dose of your power so that they can continue to perform the task that you've given them to perform, that they would be faithful, consistent, true to the end. We thank you for the role that they play in our lives, and we love you for giving us our moms. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.